Hey everyone, it's Jim Sirk. Welcome back. Thanks for listening. I appreciate it. So in this podcast, I'm interviewing Omar Khadib, who is the Director of Growth for Potrero Medical. Potrero Medical is a company near and dear to my heart because they're focused in the same area that I'm focused in at Osprey, and that's kidney care. What they've basically done is created a smart catheter designed to reveal trends so healthcare providers can visualize patterns within the patient without spending time managing data to know what to do. So basically, their system tells the doctor or gives the doctor or healthcare provider a bunch of data so they could know what's potentially happening with the patient's kidneys. And we just don't talk about their device. We talk about our marketplace. We talk about the changes that are going in our marketplace. We talk about value-based care. What does that mean versus fee-for-service? We talk about how doctors make emotional decisions and then rationalize it after they've made the decision. We talk about what I call the total hospital cell that is going to be needed to bring in products into the future. And um, how we need to work in this environment with our doctors to get them more educated on the value our products deliver. We talk about this robotics phase that we're in and, and what Potrero Medical is doing with predictive analytics and artificial intelligence that there might be some short-term costs, but over the long term, there's a lot of value that's going to be given to the healthcare system so that we can heal our healthcare system. So we talk a, a lot about our field and, and how to attack it as much as we do about his company and the, the great technology they have for patients in, in, uh, in helping prevent uh, kidney injury. So without further ado, hold your seat, hang on tight, enjoy the ride. Welcome back, everybody, to the Medical Sales Nation. It's Jim Surik, and uh, I'm excited today. I have Omar Khadib with me, who's the Director of Growth for Potrero Medical, which is a company that's, uh, I'll, let, I'll let Omar get into it, but it's, it's a company using predictive analytics, artificial intelligence to help reduce acute kidney injury during surgery in, in the ICU, and I'm very passionate about acute a kidney injury because I'm working at Osprey now and we're, we're kind of working together to not together. We're working on the same, uh, the problem in different areas. So really excited. Omar, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, Jim. Hey, thank you very much for letting me be on. So, uh, yeah, I'll give you a little, uh, you know, in, insight on, uh, on Petrero. So uh, as as you mentioned, we uh, we're one of the things we're trying to do is help uh, physicians and nursing teams prevent acute kidney injury. Um, we started a few years ago out of uh, an incubator called Theranova. It was founded by a very innovative and uh, uh, brilliant uh, physician named Dr. Dan Burnett, uh, who's you know very passionate uh, physician, uh, entrepreneur, and innovator. And what he developed was a critical care monitoring system. And uh, if you go to an ICU, uh, what we're all used to seeing is a Foley catheter that's in a patient in their bladder and that's draining urine. And usually it's a dumb device because it's literally uh, a silicone tube and it goes into a bag. The problem, and that's why we always see urine in it, is that it's based on old archaic technology, right? This thing hasn't changed in the last hundred years. Um, So Dan Burnett looked at this and says, you know, there's some reason, some way we should automate this because, you know, every hour, according to protocol, and this is not always the case, you know, nurse, a nurse has to go in and literally lift up the tubing and milk the urine into the bag, right? Oh, geez. Yeah. And the problem with that is you get unsterile urine, right? Because once the urine leaves the bladder, it's unsterile that flows back into the bladder. So that's why you have a big issue with uh, infections in hospital and catheter-associated infections. That's why they want to always pull the catheter out. Plus, think about it from a data standpoint. Imagine that you had to manually go in every hour to take a measurement of something. And as we know from the complexities of healthcare, that's just not going to happen, right? So Dan Burnett uh, developed a a monitoring system for this that introduced uh, 
uh, light uh, air into the catheter, not in the bladder, of course, but also, but you know, f more forward down in the catheter, kind of like if you hold a straw in your drink and you lift the straw up, the uh, the liquid stays in there. But if you poke a little hole in the middle, it'll the, the air will push the liquid down. Sure. So we so we introduced that uh, system called active drain line sis, uh, uh, clearance, and that pretty much automated urine output. So now urine output is being automated; it's flowing. The next thing that Dr. Burnett said is, you know what, we should be capturing data on this. So they started capturing data on this um, continuously and in real time. And of course, when you capture data for some vital sign, and this is the last vital sign to be automated, by the way, of the six that there are, you start seeing trends in the data to give you ideas of kidney health, organ perfusion, you know, and of course, you know, Dan's a, a, a brilliant physician. So he said, well, since the catheter is in there, we should also put a sensor at the tip of it. So we actually measure intra-abdominal pressure. So as kind of a long intro to the company, but in short, what we're working on today is we have a smart sensing catheter with a, uh, you know, the world's only uh, monitoring system that can actually introduce uh, active drain line clearance the way we do. And so we're gathering insights on temperature, uh, uh, urine output, and intra-abdominal pressure, and put you know developing algorithms for it so that way physicians and hospitals can be better about predicting things like acute kidney injury, also intra-abdominal compartment syndrome, which are two huge you know diseases and critical illnesses that are kind of like black boxes. You just you know, people don't talk about them because you can't really do anything about them until now. Until now. Okay. So I, I just, I think it's, I, all this stuff is really fascinating what's going on in medicine. And so really at the end of the day, when you get all this data back from the, from the, from the system, you're able to tell the healthcare practitioners uh, maybe a better way of treating this patient to avoid a potential injury or something else that might happen? Uh so not exactly. So we are not we are not a diagnostic uh, um, uh, device, uh, but rather the, the idea is this: is that if you're able to gather data and uh, develop algorithms that can predict critical illnesses like acute kidney injury, then you allow the f uh, medical team time to hopefully prevent it. Yeah. Okay. Right? Yep. So, so that's the biggest part. Okay. So yeah, you're giving them data so they can make better decisions. Absolutely. Absolutely. And more importantly, I, I, I kind of joke with people and say, in a way, we're almost um, uh, an you know, anti-technology company. And, and I say that in the sense that you know, we developed our technology not so that physicians and nurses can spend more time interacting with it, but so that our technology does something that the physician nurse does not have to do anymore. So they go back to where they originally started in medical history, which is spending more time at the patient bedside. Right. That's really, the, I think, the importance of technology and why you and I went into this is not to develop technology so people spend more time with it, but to develop technology to augment and alleviate people you know, from doing all these monotonous tasks so they can spend more time in that human-to-human -human interaction. Yeah, right? no, that's fantastic. No, that's fantastic. So I want to dive a little bit into your background. So... You you graduated from Texas Tech with uh, a medical degree, right? Uh, yes and no. So I actually <laughs> dropped out of Texas Tech. So I appreciate that you think I graduated. I do. But yeah, so my background, I went to the, the great University of Texas at El Paso, UTEP, the UTEP minors. I got a degree in biology and chemistry. And then I went to uh, medical school at Texas Tech University, great medical school. And halfway through, I just realized that I had a um, – I had a draw to technology and business, and so I left. So I didn't get an MD. I just got the M, and I okay. left. <laughs> yeah, right. Got and it. I, and I, and I uh, you know, as you know, Jim, it, this is a tough industry to get into. So like everyone, I, I struggled. I uh, interviewed with many companies. A lot of companies just weren't interested, except this one small Israeli startup who uh, had 30 people at the time, two of which dropped out of medical school like me, and they took a chance on me, and it worked out for them, and it worked out for me, and that company was uh, Mazor Robotics. It was the world's right. first robotic spine and neurosurgical company. Right. Well, tell me, uh, tell me about that. So what drew you to robotics at that time? Because I, I look back, and we'll, we'll get into this a little bit. I've talked about it before on the podcast of where 
all of this information and technology is going, you know, it's not technology for technology's sakes, but how are we going to use this technology to heal our healthcare system? And, um, and so the ro- so from a robotic standpoint, when you jumped into it, it was fairly new. Very new. Yeah. Uh, so new that, uh, a lot of people thought it was a joke. Yeah. Um, I still remember these days when I would go to uh, conferences and I, as a young, uh, sales and marketing professional, it's really something when you're getting trained at a booth and surgeons are just coming by just to kind of pick a fight with you about it. <laughs> Silly. You know, it's, and it's tough. Like, uh, so, you know, I got into Mazor. I mean, of course that was by, by pure luck, I think. And of course, um, when given the right opportunity, I, I took it, I held onto it with my dear life. Um, but the one uh, job offer I got happened to be at the very top of the medical device hierarchy in the sense that it's it's capital equipment and high tech technology. Yeah. Right. Um, and so, you know, I, I think after that experience, I you know, and I think I, I don't want to speak for you, but I, I think you're in the same camp. Once you get bitten by the, you know, first to market uh, disruptive technology bug, you can't go to anything else like I, I i have not been at another like sort of a a me too product company where a company has a, a product that's similar to something else right i just can't do that i like going to places where i feel that they're pushing the limits of uh, the standard of care and more importantly introducing technology that's really going to make a difference because technology is really cool but the problem with it in healthcare as you know it, it, it increases the cost of healthcare. So if we're going to do that, we have to do it in a way that's going to make sense for the healthcare system. And yeah, maybe it, 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 it increases some costs at the beginning, but over time it finds ways to decrease it because, you know, we're reducing, uh, you know, hospital stay length, we're reducing mortality, we're reducing complications, you know, and uh, Jim, let's face it. There's something that our industry does not talk about because it's sort of taboo. But you know, there's a reason why there's a high physician suicide and burnout rate, right? Yeah. So find ways to combat and 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 alleviate that. Yeah. Well, uh, so no, and I I want to we can dive into that too. Is so when when you were with Missouri and you started, you, you talk about being at the booth and surgeons picking fights with you. I have to imagine. And you tell me that the, one of the toughest parts was you're you telling me this robot's going to do a better job than I'm going to do. It, was that the conversation? Yeah, well, it was it was similar to that because on one side, yeah, the robot did do a better job. And we we were able to prove that in labs and the way we would do that if we would. So, f- number one, my recommendation to every salesperson, you do not go, you know, picking a fight right. with the person trying to sell to because they're right. just going to tell you to screw, screw off of right? course of course but but you know in lab lab settings you know there'll be like let's say a chief attending in the lab and saying okay i'm going to compete with you let's see if you can place this pedicle screw into the spine into the lumbar spine better than me and we'll get a, a, a junior sales rep and say okay junior sales rep uses the robot and then the surgeon gets to do it on their own and <laughs> the sales rep wins every single time because you're using technology but the point is we're not trying. You're not trying to replace, and this is the big misconception. This is how our industry has failed educating uh, physicians about this. It's not to replace physicians. These things are made to augment their skills. Right. Right. You know, I there. Look, I, I there's plenty of things that I could I could do. You know, that's not that that aren't really necessarily replacing me. Look, I'm a, I'm in. You know, part of my job is marketing, and I use a variety of software and marketing tools. They're not replacing me. They're augmenting my skills so I can focus more of my time on important things. Just, I'll tell you what, I don't want to go into my marketing campaigns every hour or every minute and hand select the data to track it. I mean, I'll yeah. lose my mind. Yeah. Right? No, I, I agree. It's interesting because even with Osprey, we have a simple technology that diverts 40% of the dye that's injected into patients during an angiogram procedure that maintains the pressure so the doctor gets a great image. And what you can get from that are doctors and cath lab techs saying, well, we're very careful, we do a good job, we don't have a problem. It's, no, no, we're just trying to take this, that's something that you don't have to worry about anymore. Do the procedure and know at the end of the day that this product is going to help the outcome. It's not a critique because these patients that are coming to you are sicker than they've ever been. 
And that's not your fault. They have their comorbidities are, you know, three, four, five at a time. And so they're just sicker. So take that worry of the kidney off your plate and let us deal with it. And you, you take care of the cardiac issues at hand. And that's really the, the, the message that you're saying is we're not trying to replace. We're not saying you're doing anything wrong. We just have an opportunity to help you focus on what you're there for. Absolutely. I mean, look, uh, Osprey's uh, tech, I'm a, I'm a fan of it. Uh, you know, and I think it, it makes sense, you know, cause again, someone could argue that, you know, we don't want to spend capital equipment costs on this, but here's where you, where you are spending money. And it's, it's one of the most dangerous things in business, which is you have a leak financially, but you don't know where it is. So you have a patient who comes in who, as he says, two, three, four times higher when it comes to uh, risk when it comes to their kidney. Let's just say that they're diabetic. They've had uh, kidney failure in the past, right? And they come in and they get one, you get, they use too much dye because essentially you have somebody who's, who's guessing, right? Yeah. You know, it doesn't, I don't care how good you are, you know, you're still guessing and, and more often than not, you have somebody who's guessing wrong. So you're spending more money on dye. And number two, you're hitting that kidney, which is already very sensitive with a lot of issues. So you have a patient that's going into the cath lab for a cardiac related issue and you're making it worse because you're using more contrast. They leave, the kidney has uh, incurred some kind of injury and guess what's going to happen? Not, not maybe the next day, not the next two days, but three months, six months, a yeah. year from then, five years from then, they're going to die probably from a cardiovascular issue that's that right. starts because of kidney failure. That's right. And that's not recorded. Right. right. No, you're absolutely right. Well, you bring something up um, when you were talking about the robotics at uh, Missouri is that um, you're trying to improve length of stay, mortality, and we're really talking about um, quality initiatives as well, right? Just having a better quality outcome. As we move from a fee-for-service um, healthcare payment system to a value-based payment system, this is going to become much more important. And I'm, I'll tell you what, I'm so excited about learning about this piece of the, of the total hospital cell versus selling, you know, my shiny new widget, my new, I was in the spinal implant business in the early days for 10 years for sophomore Danix. So I know that business, um, you know, it's from, a classic company. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, so wrote through it when Medtronic bought it. Um, so I get that that business from from that perspective, but that was a surgeon driven preference item. And like you mentioned, that you don't want to sell. Basically, you're saying, and I agree with you. I don't want to sell a commodity. And a spinal implant is a commodity. A hip is a commodity. A knee is a commodity. A pacer is a commodity. Until you get to putting in the right device for the right patient at the right time, an 80-year-old doesn't need the same hip or knee as a 45-year-old that may need one because of the activity levels. But at the end of the day, I believe our industry and our commercial um, uh, efforts need to change the way in which we approach it to a total hospital cell. I've got to talk to more people in the hospital. It's a business-to-business cell, so I can have an educated conversation on length of stay, readmittance rates, mortality, quality initiatives, because it's coming. And, uh, and so you being in the beginning of this with robotics, I'm just curious um, how you evolved into having these conversations to get doctors and basically administration interested in having that conversation. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's a very good question, and I'll tell you, you know, the first thing it starts with is, you know, as you know, I'm a big, I'm an avid reader. Yeah. But for those who who spend the time to read uh, Jeffrey Morris Crossing the Chasm, you know, you have to have the right conversations with the right people at the right time. Meaning, you know, early on in the company, you know, and this is a mistake that a lot of salespeople, both junior and and tenure, make which is saying, okay, we just we have this new technology. If we go for this well-respected physician or surgeon who sits as, as chair at the head of the biggest hospital in the world and they use it or they like it, we're, we're going to be solid. And what you have to be doing is looking into the market and saying, who's going to be the person who's likely going to be in a small community hospital? Because that, for some reason, always happens that way. 
who's going to be an early pioneer, who may not be an obvious pick, but who will be the one to take our company and our product to the next stage, which is like early adopters and then early majority, right? So I think it's really understanding at what phase your company is in and what phase the product is in and then finding a customer who has the tolerance for that because an early adopter or, or early, uh, early pioneer of your company and product, they're going to have a much higher threshold when it comes to dealing with product issues, um, the, you know, the ugliness of the baby that you have Yeah. versus later on in the market, let's say this position who sits at a, a very big academic institution, those people, or let's just call it the early majority of the market, they're not looking for just a cool piece of technology. They're looking for a full solution and a de facto standard, right? Which for most startups, you're not at that point yet when you approach those people. So I think it's, you know, going back to the, uh, conversations at, at a exhibit hall booth, you got to know right away who are the people you should have conversations with. And it's, it's not just like that in robotics, but I think in everything, which is you have something, you say, Hey, this is something that I made. This is what it does. And if somebody says, I don't like it, then you say, that's fine. It's just not for you. And you move on to the next yeah, person. I agree. Or you spend trying to convince that, that one person you're wasting time because there's somebody else behind them who actually is there to see you and who's genuinely interested, but they may just walk away, right? Yeah, no, yeah, I agree. And it's it's we we as commercial people waste a lot of time trying to force that conversation versus cutting bait and moving on. You don't when you're Absolutely. bringing right when you're bringing products on, you don't need a hundred percent conversion, right? Yeah, you're, you're looking for small incremental market share growth. And obviously, Missouri was acquired and, and, it, and it succeeded because of that. So now I'm curious, though, when you brought the – let's say you got your, your uh, early uh, uh, adopter, your early pioneer, and they wanted, they wanted to bring this into the hospital and purchase it. What were your conversations like with administration at that time? Because this was a new technology, you know, not, not unproven but not proven. Just wondering how that went. Yeah, and and to add like another piece to it, you know, um, there's no there is no code mm -hmm. and there's no reimbursement for it, right? Right. So how do you get a hospital to buy an expensive piece of capital equipment when there's not no reimbursement for it, right? right. That's exactly it. So the conversations we have with administration. So first, you, you, no matter what, I I have a bias to thinking that when it comes to capital equipment like robotics, it cannot be a top down approach. Meaning you talk, you convince the C suite. And then you go to the clinicians because, look, clinicians, historically, they become more and more like employees of a hospital. It's a very sad thing to see. And it's culturally what, not physicians, what physicians are not used to. And so the last thing you want is to, give, to have one more thing in their day come up where it's like, oh, hey, uh, your boss and uh, the uh, suits, the business people made a decision and you got to use this. Because yeah. then you're going to end up with capital equipment that's going to sit in the corner of a hospital collecting dust. Right. Or you're going to have either physicians and or staff who have not been emotionally bought into it, who are just going to find ways to sabotage and say, yeah, this thing slows us down in cases. It's causing yep. problems. And, and here are yep. the reasons. And you're done. But so to go back to what you said, when we're in the after we find a clinical champion who has skin in the game, who believes in it. Right. For their patients. Right. It, it, this is not getting them bought in for any other reason except for the fact that they want to help patients. And sure, there might be other reasons as well. You know, maybe they want to build a, a legacy and be the first to introduce it to their region, right? But after that, you go and have the conversation with the administration, and you tell them this, especially with elective procedures, which is when it comes to elective procedures, whether insurance insurance is, is required is involved or not, patients need to have a reason to choose you over another hospital, right? Sure. And there's actually a study. Uh, done with uh, about 2,000 2, patients, and they showed them um, the name of a physician and asked, do you know this physician, yes or no? And the ones who said yes, they collected them and put them in a group, and they said, okay, if you know this physician, do you, do you um, prefer them for care? And remarkably, only one in five uh, patients, one in five, said, yes, I know this physician, and I, I, I would like to have them for their care. So the question wow. was, yeah, why is that? And the reasons, the reason that that one patient went ahead and chose that physician, one out of five, right, is for three three criteria. Number one, 
it's a new physician and they recognize the name because it's, you know, it's, let's say it's a very known, well-known physician. They hire Dr. So-and-so out of Harvard, right? Number two, the hospital opens a new treatment center, like a new, a new, like a, like a spinal surgery center, right? And the third one is technology, right? That's a big piece of terms of how patients actually make a decision. So when we explain this to the hospital and say, look, you're going to give patients a reason to come and see you, right? It's, it's a clear reason, not just because of the quality of care and everything, which is what everybody else is touting, but you have technology. And secondly, you can start really putting where your, your money where your mouth is. If you really believe that you're a center of excellence and you believe in, in using innovative technologies to push and advance medicine, then this is the next step. Right. Okay. So when you're it, when you're having that conversation and you're talking about it, are you getting an administration? And it's not going to happen. It's one thing that I've I've realized in in this uh, total hospital cell. It's top down. It's bottoms up. At this at the same time, you've got to be working it. Is that every hospital is different? There's no straight algorithm on how to do this. But asking that when you're having that conversation in the beginning. How are they accepting it? What percent are saying, yeah, I agree with that. I've got to stay ahead. I understand where this is going versus I've got a P&L I have to manage and you're busting it. So I need you to leave. Yeah. You know, it, it really ranges. It really ranges. And I think the most important part is you, even if you have clinical buy-in, right? So this, this is where it becomes complicated. So not every hospital just sits by itself. There's a lot of hospitals that are actually owned by a large corporation like HCA and Tenet. So you might have clinical champion, a clinical champion. You might have administration who says, yeah, we like it. But the regional office looks at the hospital and says, yeah, that CEO, they have not been doing very well. We're not going to you know, approve this budget. For sure. That. Sure. So you have to have, you have to have a compelling economic story that makes sense for the hospital. And again, this is the biggest thing that um, when I try and uh, advise and coach people, especially on the marketing side, is that because of the industry we're in, we really focus a lot on clinical studies and data, which is very important. Don't get me wrong. But human beings are human beings. Yeah. And we make decisions. This is, this is like I, I'm a, kind of like a broken record on this. We make decisions emotionally. And after that decision has been made, we work backwards to rationalize it. Yep. So if you think about it, we, we think from the heart, we act through the hand, and then we use the head to rationalize that backwards. Right. Right? Yep. So so it's important. So, you know, it you have to ask, like, you know, who is it for and what's it for? So who's it for? It, am I speaking to a small regional hospital that's trying to compete with the larger institutions that are in the city? Am I, ta- am I speaking with a hospital that, is part of a large conglomerate, a large corporation, and this CEO is literally being judged on if they're going to screw anything up. Because when you're CEO of, a, of organizations that are large like that, you're not getting paid because of you know really great and innovative ideas. You're getting paid so things do not go wrong. Yeah, that's right? exactly right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So you have to you have to really think from the point of view of the person you're selling to. And I think the other thing is, and this is what makes our job very difficult, Jim, is most of the times we're not the ones in those rooms having those conversations. We're having to coach and prep the physician who wants the technology but doesn't know how to actually sell because they're not trying to do that. Right. Right. So teaching them how do you tell the story? How do you tell the story about the value to the patients, the hospital, you know, the economic story, right? All those things have to make sense. Yeah, well, it's it's funny. I've Like I said, I've done a few podcasts and talked about – We've got to understand that the value that we drive is for the patient, the doctor, him or herself, the hospital, and the healthcare system. And it needs to be clinical, financial, and strategic. So, and financial doesn't necessarily these days mean I'm going to make more money, but it can mean I'm going to save more money. I'm going to stop losing money on the back end. And those are different conversations that most med tech reps are not comfortable or familiar having but as we bring in these new technologies it's up to it's up to us to be able to one educate our commercial people so that they can educate you're absolutely right the doctors who are going to go speak at the vac committees on why this thing is important and what it's going to do for the entire system not just him or her in a uh, in an OR setting let's say let's say so 
Yeah, and you know the biggest the biggest thing you know if you if you look at any a hospital economic report, overall patient satisfaction in the U.S. healthcare system is really really low. Um, and even though like say satisfaction with a patient's individual physician is more favorable, the system is generally viewed as like really poorly organized and very expensive. And so technology will increase the costs of these systems. But that's in the short term. If done in, in the right way and implemented, which is why these large hospitals, they acquire these uh, uh, pieces of technology, over time you find ways to lower, lower the cost of overall care, which is we're, moving, we're trying to move away from the fee for service and focusing on overall care. So if you look at, for example, Petrero, yes, it, you know, our technology is more expensive than, uh, you know, like – a silicon foil sure, cap, of course, back, right? Yeah, but but you know what the cost is to a hospital that has a patient who's, who requires AKI or acute kidney injury. Which, by the way, for those listening, you go into the ICU, and these aren't my studies. Most of these studies show that a patient who goes into the ICU, anywhere from forty to fifty percent of them, they're going to get uh, AKI. And once you get AKI, you're in the hospital for an extra one to two days. That's anywhere from seven to fifteen to twenty thousand dollars more in cost, depending on what happens with that patient, right? But those things are not so black and white because these are these are costs. Because in order to find these costs, you have to track it, right? And the yeah. only way they're able to track it is these very um, uh, rigorous uh, research studies where they said, "Oh God, this is you know this is costing a lot of money." And this, you know, Jim, I know that I'm sure that you and uh, your team at Osprey talk about this all the time. AKI is nothing new. It's been around for a long time, but I've never heard of it until this year. <laughs> I've never heard of it either. Yeah. Yeah. And the reason, and look, I mean, uh, I, I couldn't believe it that, so in two, 2017, they found that 300,000 Americans died from acute kidney injury. That same year, it was something like 40 or 48,000, uh, 40, 40 or 48,000 died from breast cancer, right? Right. right. It's a huge difference. And the reason why we don't know about AKI is because no one could, no one really understood it that well. No one could track it, and there, you, you, there's not much to do about it. So why talk about it? But things have changed. Research has gotten better, and we have better technologies to address these kind of things, like what Osprey does, like what Petrero does. You know? Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. Obviously, it's uh, it's a big deal because um, not just AKI, but kidney care, because the White House just came out. You know, I don't know, about a month ago talking about a kidney care initiative and it's about transplants, dialysis and prevention of uh, of kidney disease and AKI because it costs the healthcare system so much. And like you, I've been doing this, you know, I've been doing this for 25 years and I started talking to Mike McCormick, the CEO at Osprey. I, I never heard of AKI, not, not once. And... Um, my mom is a nurse. She was a nurse, and she actually worked at the dialysis center at Loyola University here in Chicago. And I was asking her about it before I went to go work for Osprey, and she said, yeah, she goes, it was a, it's a big problem, obviously. She goes, you'd have people that went in for a cardiovascular procedure and came out with kidney disease. And, and she said, so they fix one problem and create another, not their fault, but that's just what happens. So now you take technology and you're able to mitigate that type of risk. And, and it's the same thing with the cath lab. Like you were talking from a healthcare economics perspective, 25% of patients that go into a cath lab have chronic kidney disease. A certain percent of those will come out of the cath lab with an AKI injury. Premier did a study on this, and they found that it, the average cost was $15,000, and out of the 742 hospitals that they, they um, gathered their data, it cost them $1.7 billion over five years. So, so when you, you just look at this, and then you'd say, well, how, does, how can we have a healthcare system that nobody knows this is happening? Well, I think I, I don't have you know, the answer, but it's kind of apparent. I go in for a procedure. I leave the hospital, I come back through the emergency room, I'm admitted on the floor for a nephrologist, but I came in to the hospital, well, let's say a week earlier for X, but now I'm in there for Y, and the doctor that treated me for X doesn't know that I'm 
been admitted because I'm not being admitted for what I came originally for. I'm now there for something else. And, and so there's this disconnect of whose problem it is as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, one thing that, uh, uh, that comes to mind, you know, I had a discussion with a, a cardiothoracic anesthesiologist named Dr. Gordon Morewood. Uh, he, he's really well known because he, he's one of the few physicians that, who actually is able to communicate um, uh, value-based care and, and new economic uh, and financial models in healthcare. And one of the things he mentioned to me is that, you know, when it comes to a healthcare spending, you know, a lot of it is based on efficiency, right? And, you know, if you think about it in its most general terms, you know, you think of efficiency as the amount of output generated for a certain amount of input. And in healthcare, for pretty much all of them, the way they think of efficiency is they frame that discussion um, pretty much exclusively in personal terms, meaning that they imagine efficiency as something that's based on the number of patient center processes that they can complete That's right. per unit of effort, That's right? right? So patients per hour, per shift, per day. And even, and Dr. Morwood was the one who, who educated me about this. He said, you know, that's a big mistake because of all the inefficient spending in healthcare that we have today, there's actually only a very small proportion that can be resolved just by increasing personal productivity of a healthcare professional. That's exactly okay. right. Yeah. And, and this goes back to the, the, uh, the concept of value-based care because by a massive order of magnitude, the greater source of, of we can call wasted spending is what you can think of as low or no value healthcare, right? So for something like that, you know, it's referring to any aspect of care that is delivered in, let's say, any place in time in the hospital for a particular patient that doesn't result in the desired end product, which is a measurable improvement in the patient's health. So again, think about what you and I do. Patient goes in for a cardiovascular procedure. They either go to the ICU or they need to go to the cath lab, right? Right. Either they get contrast, uh, in, you know, they get, uh, contrast used on them, or let's say they don't go to the cath lab, you just go straight to the ICU. But because of poor urine output monitoring, you don't know what's coming out of the system. So the physicians and nurses are making guesses as what has to go into the body in terms of boluses and medications. Either way, either scenario, the kidneys are hit hard yeah. and the patient's overall health, they're already trying to recover from a procedure and now it's become even a bigger obstacle because of these kind of things because our kidneys have been compromised, right? Exa no, exactly. So in, in these conversations, like this conversation and how you're presenting the information and uh, um, and just on the kidney side of it, right? Because there's other things that we could talk about as well, but just on that side of it is a different way of approaching a marketplace you know, versus a surgeon preference, shiny new implant. And I'm going to keep coming back to that because I have friends that are, you know, obviously I have friends that are still in sales, sales management, um, that are refusing to have this conversation about, and let's just call it value-based care. Value-based care encompasses a lot of things, but what it it's saying is that we have to become better business partners with our hospital systems. The only way we can do that is if we're better educated and understand their business as well as they do and how we can provide value, right? Absolutely. And, Amen to that. Yeah. And so, and that's where um, I try to, I try to teach this to some of my friends that, you know, have been selling in the, in the market for a long time that you've got to become a better student of your game with the hospital so that you're, you are bringing value to a multi-headed customer. So when they see you, they want to talk to you because you're going to add something of value to what their job is. And that's not easy, but you have to have an open mind and it's it's funny too because I've got these great people that work for me uh, that are in our strategic accounts, and it's uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna name them Al Alistair um, Barrow and Rachel Armstrong, and they're uh, healthcare economic gurus. And as they're helping us as we're talking to systems, the system hospital systems are saying there's so many companies that are trying to figure out this value based care and selling solution, and we're trying. To learn with you. And those are the conversations you want to have instead of 
can you take 10% off your price on your pedicle screw? I don't want to have that conversation. I want to say, how am I going to help you, your patients, the practices that doctors operate in, the hospital system, and healing our healthcare system? If we could wrap our heads around that and everything that we do, we as an industry and on the commercial side will just elevate our standing amongst our peers and, and the people we're trying to sell to. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because look, I mean, I'm not going to lie, you know, price, price is part of the discussion, whether sure. you like it or not, but it cannot be the tip of the spear. You know, for me, at least my approach to it is if you have to sell on price, you're, you're going to lose, right? You're going to be in a race to the bottom and you don't want to be in that kind of race. So, you know, you have to sell, you have to sell based on value. Absolutely. Right? You know, and, and I think you said it best, you know, my, my mentor, uh, who's Hands down, one of the mo most legendary sales executive in surgical robotics, Chris Sells. Uh, he passed away this summer. May he rest in peace. He said it to me. You know, he said the best people in this business they're students of the game. Yeah. Right. Because at the end of the day, you know, look, uh, salespeople are always trying to find ways to relate to, to the person they're selling to, and the best way to do that is to be seen as a peer. Yeah. One of the things, and this is kind of what got me into uh, to marketing and and. I, in my opinion, why I've been fortunate enough to do well in it is early on at Mazor, you know, so for a robotic case to happen in Mazor, the rep had to be in the room because we actually planned the case with the physician because we're teaching them robotic surgery. So we had to do it with them. So in doing that, we also had to have clinical arguments with the surgeon before the case about how to best approach it, right? So to do that, you have to really know what the hell you're talking about. Absolutely. And then I noticed very quickly that these reps, you know, that which included myself, we were regarded in much higher standard when we enter the hospital. We were not just some other rep. And that's really how I developed, you know, my, well, I don't want to call it a thesis anymore because I think it's kind of proven itself out over time. But this concept that if you want to be very good at marketing and selling to the customer, you need to be having your, you need to put yourself in a position where you have a strong authority bias, meaning that you know something that they don't know and they're coming to you for answers. And that is unrelated to your product. Anybody can have you know answers and solutions related to the product. But if you understand the economics, the disease, the state of healthcare, all these things, you're looked at as a peer. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. And of course, that's that's the basis for establishing trust and into you know, to in order to sell, you have to establish trust. Yeah. Right. No, and trust comes from having that expertise. Um and the only way you get that expertise is with time, but it's being that, and I've used that term all the time, student of the game. You have to be a student of the game because our, especially in healthcare, I mean, that's all I know. That's all I've been doing for 25 years. And I'll say to people, well, it's changing. And everyone will say, well, it's always been changing. Yes. What have you done to keep up with the change to improve your conversations? Not just, to, not, right? Absolutely. Look, you, I can't tell you how many times I, I literally want to just like bang my head against the wall when I speak to another medical device marketer and they ask, oh, you know, where do you run your campaigns and where what channels are you using? I'm like, oh, well, LinkedIn's a major channel and same with Twitter. And they're like, doctors aren't on Twitter. I'm like, are you kidding me? I was like, they're, they're, they're the most active, some of the most active group of professionals I've ever seen in my life are physicians like nephrologists on, on Twitter. Yeah. Well, you educated I, me on that. I didn't know that until you told me about two weeks ago. There's no reason for you to know that though, because you're not you're not in you're not in digital marketing, so yeah. it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Good. <laughs> so, so I can only be I can only be uh, so hard on you about it, but yeah, no, and and look, I think part of this, Jim. Look, you know, I I also, and this is my personal mission. I also blame our industry, sure, because our industry does a poor job of. You know, finding ways to be open and educating one another. I, I for some reason, we really feel uh, good about hoarding information and not sharing with one another. When realizing that it's a network effect, and when you do that, the system gets better. And as the saying goes, a rising tide raises all boats. You know, you're doing that right now with your podcast. That's part of the reason why I think you and I hit it off. And I said, man, I wish there, I wish there's more gems in the world. Oh you know? no, I, I appreciate that. Well, yeah, it's trying to build this community. So we're talking to each other, but I think I agree with you. Our industry doesn't talk to each other. It's because 85% of it is owned by a few companies and they keep yeah. everything to themselves. And 
They don't want to let it out. It's entrepreneurial startup companies. We need to talk to each other. Even if we might be competing, we still need to talk to each other so that we can elevate our game and beat up on the big boys and, um, and take share. It was funny because referring back to my, my uh, podcast with Bruce Radcliffe out of the Aurora Advocate System, he said he loves startups because he loves them because they put the big boys back on their heels and they, they um, create change and movement within the marketplace. And if Absolutely. we, right, I mean, it, we, this is coming from the VP of strategic supply saying, but you guys have to talk to me just as much as you talk to the doctor so I can help you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, there's an interesting psychological concept that has been really, you know, it's really gotten my attention, which is if you think about, you know, liberal versus conservative, right? Or, um, you know, a lot of it's like feminine versus masculine. Sure. So, you know, on the liberal side, it's it's creative. It's it's growth oriented. It's It doesn't stick to processes, right? And you need that to generate ideas, right? And you can look at that as, as startups. But... If that's all you are, if you're just growth oriented, you're always coming up with ideas, you never stick to anything to really scale it out. Sure. So then you need larger corporations. You can say that that's, you know, con you know, the more conservative types, right? Sure. Who are not the ones generating new ideas, but they're the ones who take an idea and say, okay, this is really good. How do we conservatively and in a disciplined fashion adhere to a process to scale this out and, and, and take it to the next level, right? Because when you, you know, for me, I'm not going to function very well in a large corporation because they already have the processes down and they're just trying to scale it out. Right. Somebody like me comes along and I'm, and I'm thinking, Hey, wh what's a completely new way we can, we can pivot this and, and try something new. I'm not that, that type of person and vice versa. Those people are not the ones to come into the startup world, which anytime someone from the big corporate world says, oh, I can't wait to get into startups. I tell them like, be prepared. You're going to be really uncomfortable for a couple of years. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. I got two stories. Um, one, uh, a venture capitalist that sat on uh, the board over at Intellis before we sold it off to Stryker. He was telling me how he was interviewing somebody from a big company. I won't name the company. And they operate within a matrix, right? So everybody's got their spot in the matrix. So he asked this guy this question. I think it's, I laugh, but I shouldn't laugh because I think it's sad. He said, okay, where are you within the matrix? He told him and he said, if you didn't show up for a month, would anybody care? And, and now you think about that, right? Because it's so process oriented that even if that person isn't there, the work's still going to get done. And like you and myself, I need to be active. I need to be part of something. If somebody said, oh, well, if, you know, Jim, you didn't show up for work for a month, it'd be fine. I'd actually feel bad about myself. So, um, yeah, no, absolutely. And that's, that's really the way to think about it too. Right. And I think, you know, when it comes to leadership, that's a big part of it because what do people want at the end of the day? Yes. They want a good paying job. They want, um, you know, they want to do something meaningful, but they also want to be missed. They want to know yes. that they, they show up to work. And if they don't show up one day that people, will, not only people, but the organization will miss them, that they're making a contribution. Yeah. Right. And, and that's the value of startups. So the other, the other point, I actually have um, a friend of mine who, um, he's, he's, he's not a close friend, he's a friend of a friend, but um, he's interviewing for a VP job at a startup. Well, he's been with a big company for 20 years, a very big company. So he's calling me today to ask me my advice on doing that. And this is where I'm very honest with people. I'm like, well, you've probably got five people that help you do X, Y, and Z. Those five mm. people are now you, right? And it, yeah. it comes down to you and you're going to have to work harder, more efficient and effective than you ever had in your life to be able to join these startups. So absolutely. And, and the most important thing, you know, I think in this, in the world of startups, to, you, you're exactly right. And I know you're doing the same thing in your role as VP, because, you know, people like you and I, we're, we're doing the job of four or five people. And part of that is saying, okay, what can I do that is at least the best possible you know, way I can do it in this moment and move on. Because one thing, one thing I know that you have to get used to is you got to get used to the, the uncomfortable feeling of going home, knowing that there's still fires going on at work and yeah. you're going to wake up 
me fires again. And eventually they, they do go away. But I mean, I got to tell you, the, the, I feel that the mental, the mental uh, stability right, and discipline and strength you need to be in the startups, it has to be strong because you could be going really hard at one thing and then something changes within a day and you're like, all right, I got I to gotta abandon this thing. Yeah. And you, you need to you, – you, you abandon your emotions with it. I can't tell you how many projects I put a lot of time and effort in and then something changes in the market. I mean, for example, look, a year ago, and this is part of my – as a marketer, I don't believe in content calendars, right, with the exception of like – let's say an events calendar, but content calendars, meaning you have an idea of a piece of content you're going to release a month or two or three months. Like I don't believe in them because you're making an assumption that you know what the market's going to be interested in at that time. Very true. A year ago when I started my role or a year and a half ago, this was asked asked of me. Um, and I said, okay, I'm just going to do the exercise and, and provide it. Right. And to, to prove a point. I did that. And I, I, I made a content calendar and strategy for six months Guess how much of that actually happened? Not even ten percent, because the market changed. Right, right, market right. Changed, you yeah. know. And you learned something new. You made an assumption. Exactly. Right. You make an assumption, and then you're like, "Oh wow, that was wrong." And it's okay, especially in startups. It's okay not to be right. Just pivot fast. And so, yeah, hundred percent. Right. A hundred percent. And I think that our industry, because of its its very it's historically been conservative and slow moving. The assumption that it's is, is it's like that throughout it, right? Right. Unfortunately, the physicians we market to, the hospitals we, we market to, right? They all they're human beings just like you and I, and they engage with the same thing that you and I engage in, meaning the internet, social media, right, technology. And those things are changing on a daily basis on in terms of how we consume information, how we view the world, our perceptions of the world. And you have to be you have to be quick to change with that stuff. Yeah, abso- right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, Go ahead. Oh no, I was gonna say, you know, the you know, a lot of times when I speak at these digital conferences for these uh med tech and pharma companies, you know, the assumption is, hey, here's what I learned at this conference, here's the latest approach to this channel or medium. And then the content calendar strategy is created for the next six to nine months based on that strategy. And that strategy becomes obsolete within a month in. Yeah. And I'll, I'll see these people a year later and I'm like, hey, you know, what are you doing? They're like, oh, we're running this strategy. Can't be, we're just not seeing any traction. And I look at it and I'm like, this is over a year old. Why the hell are you doing this? They're like, we just – that conference was just last year. I'm like, I know. This has changed like five times. <laughs> right. right. No, exactly. So I, go ahead. I was going to say, but it's – again – I, I, that's why I really admire what you're doing here. It's it's podcasts like these, discussions like these, where on a, on a larger scale, who knows how many people are going to listen to this, who are going to get their mindset changed, right? Because yeah. these are the conversations our industry hasn't been happen, having, but needs to start having now, yeah, right? No, that's no, I, how I we're going to get better. Yeah, no, I and, agree. And more importantly, Jim, this is how we get better helping our customers, physicians and hospitals. Because look, one of the things I posted uh, on Twitter a few weeks ago, because it, it absolutely enraged me, was <laughs> I, I, I Googled something, right? And I, I said, I'm, I'm going to get a lot of heat for this, but I'm posting that anyway. So I tweeted out some, you know, Google. So I put at Google, you know, we believe in providing the best quality searches uh, for you to give you the most reputable uh, answers on the internet. Also Google, here's some of the best cancer drugs you can get. And it's just like, non-FDA approved garbage. Oh, Literally, anybody listening to this, just go Google best cancer drugs and you'll see all kinds of garbage. So that's what our industry has to compete with. Yeah. Misinformation. Oh, right? absolutely. And we have to be better about marketing and selling. Otherwise, patients are put in a position to make poor decisions and choices on their health. Yeah. And you know, and to add to that, I keep saying this and it's not my saying, it's Premier saying where they're there to heal healthcare. And I went to their breakthrough technology meeting in uh, in Nashville this year, and it was the first time I was there. And you know, a lot of people say what they want to say about Premier, but Premier is actually trying to heal healthcare. So I use that term all the time now. It's our job, being in this industry, to figure out ways to heal healthcare. And from a commercial side, somebody will say, 
well, I'm just a sales rep or I'm just a marketer. How am I supposed to do that? By getting the right information to the right people that's validated so that we can make better decisions together so that we move our healthcare process to make it healthier for for patients and into the future. So it is our job to do this. I don't care if you're manufacturing something on the floor or if you're a frontline sales rep, it's your job to get better at it so that we can have these conversations so people look at us with more validity and bringing value to healing our healthcare. Absolutely, absolutely. And look, you know, uh, here, here's, here's the thing, and, and this, is, this is politics and everything aside, but this is the age of the individual. I mean, look, we have a president who is not any way qualified to be a politician, yet he won the presidency. You look at somebody like Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, she was a bartender, right? Right. You know, um, again, politics aside, whether you like him or not, you have to recognize that these things are happening. Greta Thun Thunberg, she's a 16-year-old kid from Sweden, and she was giving speeches at the UN. What, literally, one, a year ago, she was just this random kid on on the internet, you know, tweeting about climate change, right? Whether you like it or not, it's the age of the individual. And so the same tool that you have in your pocket, that smartphone is the same tool that every major corporation in the world has access to, and you have the same channels. It's not like, you know, there's two or three news stations, and if you can't get on them, you know, that's about it. It's the age of the individual, and you never know from network effects the kind of impact you're having and how that's going to resonate through the waves, unless you actually put yourself out there and you try to influence it at an individual level. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I started following you on LinkedIn probably a year ago, and I'm not even sure. Maybe it's because I followed Joe Mullings and somehow following him, I got to you, right? That's how it works. I think I, that's, pro that's probably how it works, yeah. Right, and then um, and then just watching your, your content that, that is on LinkedIn – and then watching the reaction, there's so many of us out there that can provide value and education at the same time to, to the masses. So I, I agree with you 100%. So um, one question, and then, then we'll close it up. It might be a long answer. Going back That's to right. robotics, as we see this industry, right? And, and I'm talking, when I talk robotics, I'm talking predictive analytics and artificial intelligence all combined. Do you think the companies that are out there understand the way in which the product needs to be marketed and sold to our healthcare system? Are we and they still in that learning process so that we become more efficient at it? And I ask the question because I see a lot of, like Joe Mullings is a perfect example. He is all in on uh, technology and digital health and uh, robotics. I, I don't disagree with them. He's all in. But are we all ready for it? That's a great. That's a great question. So, I don't think you're. You, people are never going to be ready for it, and, and that's because uh, even when it's positive, uh, the human mind, your your brain is 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 more closely related to your great 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 caveman grandfather from thousands of years ago than it is to what it should be today. Meaning that when change happens, it is psychologically stressful and people don't like it, even when it's positive change. But we have to look at that discomfort as a signal that we're moving forward and doing the right thing, right? You know, even with a neurosurgeon, you know, uh, neurosurgery is, is a life or death thing. But you do want your neurosurgeon to explore new avenues to get better, right? Yeah, absolutely. There, hey, look, there's a time, you know. A uh, hundred years ago, where you know some some guy had this idea that he was going to take uh, small inactivated organisms and inject it into his own son because that was an idea of to keep people from getting sick. And lo and behold, vaccines were born. Sure. Yeah. Right. Yep. You know. Um, and so and so when it comes to the way we market and sell robotics to hospitals and physicians. I'm not going to say that I, I, have, I have the right answer for it, right? But I will say that we have to get away from the old way of doing it because, again, these physicians and, and hospital administrators, they don't put on their white coats and suits and go into work in the morning and become a different person. They're the same person yeah. that they were the night before when they were on Amazon, on Facebook, on Netflix. And so that's how we consume media. 
We don't consume, and this is nothing has, the internet did not change this. Human beings resonate with stories, Yeah. right? Yep. We make decisions from the heart and we rationalize backwards with our head. Yep. And so we have to find ways to do that and including with the public. Look, Jim, we have a, we have a healthcare, we have a, a, an election coming up and guess what's going to be like on the first chopping block of all the debates, pharma and healthcare, yep. right? Because it's such an easy, like it's such an easy thing for people to take shots at. And part of the reason why is that our industry does a poor job you know, telling its story, yeah. not only its story, but the stories of all the brave men and women in medicine who literally are, are giving their, their lives, their personal lives, their mental health to save and help patients. Right. Yeah. But we don't, we don't help. They're not going to be able to tell that story because they, they don't have the time. And also it's, it's a, it's a sense of pride and I don't blame them, but we have to do a better job of celebrating and teaching the public. Hey, here's the other aspects of healthcare. We understand, yes, it's expensive, it's broken. We're doing everything we can because we're trying to make it better. And same with the doctors and nurses in the hospital and administrators. Yep. So to answer your question, um, no, I don't think they're doing they're doing a good job of it right now. Some companies have, have definitely improved. Um, I used to be a big critic of Intuitive Surgical. I still am in some ways, but I got to say, you got to respect them. They've built a hell of a business. And they've gotten, they've started getting better about telling that story digitally. They still got a long ways to go. Sure. At least they're trying. Um, but again, it's, um, you know, my, my contribution to this is that I, I happen to be at a wonderful company being Petrero Medical. I have a, a really, um, a very unique, uh, a very uh, effective CEO who believes not only in better technology, but better ways of telling that story. Yeah. And so we have a podcast. We use a lot of social media. We create these stories. And at least my contribution as an individual is to say, I have control of this domain of my uh, profession. So I'm going to use it to exemplify and act out what I believe to be true. And people are going to see that, you know, and people see it on LinkedIn. Some people think it's funny that we have a podcast. Other people are inspired by it. And all I can hope for is by acting out things that I believe to be true. I'll inspire some other companies and individuals to do the same thing. And then we scale it up just like what we're doing here. Yeah, exactly. And no, I appreciate that there, there is so much more we can do. And we, we mentioned Joe Mullings. He's got that true futures now TV show. Yeah, That's it. Show. Right. And he's, he's promoting the people behind the scenes that are creating the technologies and bringing healthcare forward. So exactly what you're doing, what he's doing, what others are doing, we just have to do more of it. And, um, and hopefully this will inspire people, you know, to, to get involved, right. To, to, to share. So, and, and Jim, you know, before I know we're, we're wrapping up, but before we wrap up, do you mind if I just read, read something real quick to you? Sure. So, so, you know, real quick for the listeners and I'm, you know, uh, leave you can leave a link to my LinkedIn on the show no, show notes so people connect with me on LinkedIn. But I will post this. But again, you know my mentor Chris Sells uh, passed away this summer. He was a remarkable, remark like you know not from this time leader. Sure. And he he made this post. I kept telling him, Sells, you got to make you got to put more stuff on LinkedIn so people can learn from you. And he made this post, and I actually made it into a, a postcard. Uh, and it's uh, his 10 disruptive technology rules for early stage leaders. And it's, it's a quick list. I'm just going to read yeah, through it. Go just ahead, to, please. So, so here, is, here are his 10 rules. And there's so much wisdom in this. You know, and I, I think, Jim, you're, you've been in your career long enough to, to, to really appreciate this. But I'm going to read his list. So here is, here's a list written by Chris Sells. Number one, extreme product competence. Number two, extreme application competence. Number three, all rowing in the same direction. Number four, high communication. Use dashboards, metrics, and KPIs. Number five, deliver results. Number six, don't believe so much that you stop paying attention to critical feedback. The customer is everything. Listen. Number seven, the baby is ugly, but don't wait until it is too pretty or you will miss the market, but do acknowledge the reality that your baby is ugly. Number eight, razor blade model improves valuation two times. It drives adoption. Number nine, do more with less. Number 10, you will only travel as far as your people are willing to carry you. And he ends this post by saying, you can value this list in either direction, top to bottom or bottom to top. 
you'll always meet at number five, deliver results. As I've spent the past 20 years in the medical device startup world, this simple recipe has served me well. Good selling, Chris sells. That's so, great. That is yeah. awesome. So you're going to post that on LinkedIn? I will, I, will put, I will make that a PDF. I'll post it on LinkedIn. And anybody who wants the uh, file, I'll, I'll share it with them so that they can uh, print this out. You know, uh, People in my department, they've actually printed this out and they have it taped at their desk to constantly look at and remind them what we're working towards and how do we get there. That's great. I'm going to pass that on to, to my company and uh, in our office because that, that's awesome. That really is. So I want to um, just close this with just some of the things that we talked about. So you shared what Chris sells, um, his top 10. I want to talk about a recap, what you shared and we, sh- we talked about today is that um, this is a total hospital sell now. We're business to business professionals if we're actually going to be successful. We have to understand value-based care, length of stay, readmission, Medicare penalties, quality initiatives to be able to have a better conversation with our customers. And as you said, our customers are going to make emotional decisions, then rationalize with their heads on the information that you shared with them and understanding their business as well as they understood their business. Um, some of the things we're going to ask them, we have to acknowledge there's going to be some short-term costs, but over the long term, we're going to lower um, the cost of overall healthcare. Um, the other one is just from a, from a sales perspective is, you know, you got to coach and prep your doctors to help you sell the value of it within their VAT committees so that your brand really, uh, the brand and messaging is propagated in the right way to the hospital and be a strong authority bias. I love that. Have a strong authority of bias. Basically, you know their business better than they do, and you're there to help. Absolutely. And I think, look, you said it best earlier. It can Everything you just said, go, it, it, it tracks back to the theme of just be a student of the game. That's, That's right. it. That's right. No, it's right. Well, Omar, I really appreciate your time on this, uh, on this Friday morning. And, uh, thank you so much. And I will, uh, uh, obviously tag you on the, uh, on the podcast on LinkedIn and then have people reach out to you and, uh, and everybody listening, you got to follow Omar. He's got some of the best posts and shares out there and, uh, his connections will just open up your world. So Omar, thank you once again for uh, taking the time. Absolutely, Jim. Hey, thank you. And, you know, we, you know, thanks for doing what you do. We need you. So. All right. Thanks. Have a great day. Too. Bye.